Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today, I have the honor of welcoming Leah Martin, who's the co-founder of Time Doctor and the co-organizer of Running Remote and an avid practitioner of everything remote. Liam, welcome to Making Remote Work. Thanks for having me. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about of what you do and maybe a bit about the conference that you're running? Sure. Uh, Liam Martin, human being on planet Earth. More specifically, I am currently located in Canada. Uh, I'm at my bug out location since the virus started. So I've been here for about three and a half months, which has been an interesting kind of exercise in humanity, I guess you could call it. Uh, been working remotely for about 15 years. Ended up starting a business out of grad school, which was focused on online tutoring ended up selling that business. Then the problem that I had inside of that business was adequately measuring how long a tutor worked with a student remotely. And that's what brought about Time Doctor, which is a time tracking tool specifically for remote workers to be able to measure how long they're working and figuring out what they're doing and um, works really well if you have an agency or something like that to be able to, to bill out clients specifically. And then a few years ago, we ended up also opening up Running Remote, which came out of my also frustration of not seeing enough information about not necessarily how to hire a virtual assistant or how to be a digital nomad, but how do you go from 100 remote employees to 500 or 500 to 5,000, um, the, the logistics of building and scaling a remote team. So we ended up starting that about three years ago. The last two were in Bali, which was very beautiful. And then the last one was supposed to be in Austin, which unfortunately got canceled due to everything in events getting canceled. And we are now running virtual events as well uh, until the pandemic is over. Wonderful. Why are you such a remote work enthusiast? What got you into remote work? Mm. You didn't start working remotely, right? Yeah, well, kind of. So uh, just short version, remote work offers you the amount of freedom that literally no other type of way of working offers you. Um, we're in definitely a state of flux right now where remote work is proliferating across the world at a rate that I just never would have even perceived of until um, the pandemic. And the the reality is I am able to work from my home. I'm able to work from a co-working space. I travel about six months out of the year so I can work from various locations around the world. And so can everyone else that works inside of our company. So to me, it just boils down to freedom, being able to do that thing. It just, it, it empowers you to live a life that very few people thought was humanly possible even 20 years ago. So that's kind of the short version. The longer version is the reality of remote work actually is very, um, and we're only discovering this now, which is something I'd love to be able to get into in this podcast. The economic advantages of working remotely are unprecedented. It is the single best way to be able to improve the net profits of your business because you're in essence getting rid of the biggest cost, which is the office, 
uh, outside of staff, your office costs are your next biggest line item on a P&L. So by deleting those and recognizing that you're actually going to become more efficient, not less efficient due to that process, complete game changer. And it's interesting now because we're seeing Fortune 500 large enterprise live in front of our eyes recognize that at a breakneck speed, which is also very exciting. Is it, are you a proposer of all remote or are you more a proposer of hybrid? Because I've heard various, there are uh, like GitLab, they would say all remote. Most of the companies yeah. that I've spoken with, especially those transitioning right now, they're thinking of a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the one one of the points that you have to take into consideration is someone like Dimitri, as an example, uh, from GitLab, they're remote first. They've always been remote. So when you start remote, it's very easy to remain remote and not go hybrid. Um, someone like Wade from Zapier, he actually has been suggesting that he go to an office. <laughs> so they started remote and they're thinking, well, maybe we need an office for some of these types of jobs inside of the business. Uh, we at Time Doctor, we ended up hitting our heads against the wall constantly on how to build a remote sales team. We lost millions of dollars trying to build the remote sales team. We finally cracked it, but it required a lot of trial and error to be able to get there. So I think that hybrid is a really good stepping stone for on-premise companies. So, you know, if you're an on-premise company right now, I'm hearing a lot of people saying, well, we're going to make our support team remote, or we're going to make our marketing team remote. Um, but there, that will, I think it's an inevitability that they will go from hybrid to full remote. Um, just from a dollars and cents perspective, because they'll recognize, there'll be two forces that I think will occur. Number one, the employer will recognize how much money they're saving. And then on the other side, the employee will get frustrated with, well, why does support get to be remote and I have to go into the office? Uh, Why don't I try going remote for a month? And inevitably, you'll have to let that person do that. They'll produce a really good uh, really good work for that employer. And then the employer will say, well, my hands are tied. We got to go full remote. So um, I think that that is, I think they're actually lying to themselves, to be completely honest with you, in terms of that hybrid model. I think it's just an in-between step because they're scared. Okay. And why the reason why I'm asking is one of the issues that I keep encountering when I talk to companies about remote, uh, especially the hybrid ones, is they have political issues, right? Those that are in the mm-hmm. office, they have a FaceTime with um, uh, their managers, with the leaders. They can immediately mm-hmm. bounce ideas, whereas, and they can talk about work at lunch, right? Uh, outside of the meetings, outside, uh, outside of the video calls. This happened even before uh, COVID. Uh, but when some of the people work remote and they are not part of those conversations that happen in the office, and right, this will take place as well, right? We are moving back into into hybrid uh, status. Uh, they don't have access to those uh, discussions and maybe decisions have been taken. And even if they were part of the project, they were not part of the decision and they just hear, or sometimes there's even lack of communication and they don't even know what has happened. They just don't hear anything. Mm-hmm. For me, I think that's one of the key items that maybe will decide, are we all in the office or are we all 
remote. That's hard to deal with if you are an outsider. Yeah. You really stay as an outsider if you if you, so if you the, work remote like that. Joel Gascoigne and Amir from Doist both talk about this. They call it founder islands. And Amir, as an example, he lives in Barcelona and he has about four or five of his employees that live in Barcelona as well, but they are not allowed to go into the same co-working space as him. So specifically, they're bu he's building barriers for access. So what ends up happening is, uh, and Joel talked about this as well, he moved to Boulder, Colorado. Joel's the CEO of Buffer. And then people were coming to Boulder to be able to work with him, people that worked at Buffer. And he recognized that he needed to stop that from happening because then they would get preferred access. So there's like tier one and tier two remote workers. The way that we solve it at Time Doctor is, let's say that we were gonna do a meeting and we were all in the same physical, four or five of us was in the same physical room, but the meetings with eight people and eight people, or four people are completely remote. <clears throat> we will all meet on separate Zoom deployments. So we'll all have our laptops open and we'll all communicate directly. Uh, I'm also, just for anyone that's building a remote team as a founder or an executive, you need to be really mindful of being resistant towards decision-making for people that are face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. And it also creates an environment in which the documentation that occurs um, in remote teams is beautiful because everything needs to be commuted digitally. But then when you're face-to-face -face with someone, you just don't document those types of things. And if you look at GitLab, they're a fantastic model of this because everything that they do is completely open. Um, even for running remote, they ended up sponsoring running remote and all of the email exchanges that we had are published on their open database. So anyone, you can just type in running remote GitLab and you can see all of the email exchanges that we have inside of the organization or inside of their organization. That type of openness is really the direction that you probably would ideally like to go in terms of making remote work work very well. I understand the reality that when you look at companies like GitLab, they are not going to be corporate America. You know, that's just not going to be the reality of what's going to happen. It's going to be a different interpretation, but hopefully they can take a component of that and even just understand that there's a particular guidepost that you need to deploy, which is make sure that face-to-face -face people, you want to be biased towards their decision-making and you want to be more aggressive on agreeing with people that are remote to be able to offset those two situations. How do you feel, by the way, about um, uh, the handbook, the GitLab uh, handbook? Are you able to have something similar in Time Doctor? We do. Yeah, okay. we have one that's internal, um, so we don't share it with everybody. I really love that the guys from GitLab have published that. And it is, it is something that I promote every single time I'm doing a talk about process documentation because they give you the framework right then and there. And Dimitri, who's the CTO and co-founder of GitLab, encourages people to steal it. Just fork your own you know, repo and you have all your processes and you can edit for your own purposes. I think it's about.gitlab.com slash handbook. Mm -hmm. I think that's the right URL. And it's um, it, it, that's another big part of remote teams that a lot of people don't really want to talk about, which is the boring part. I call it almost kind of like the doing your taxes or accounting of building a remote team is 
all of your processes need to be digitized and they need to be documented, digitized and put on a system that anyone can gain access to. So inside of our company, as an example, when we onboard someone for as a new worker, um, there's about a week of just documentation that they have to get through and they're quizzed at the end uh, for all of that documentation because it's so important for them to be able to navigate that environment effectively. Because when someone is in Hong Kong, as an example, and I'm in New York, that's a 12 hour difference that person must be able to figure out answers to their own questions without my management. Definitely. That's why I asked, because I think moving companies that are just now moving and they have never been habituated to documenting things, they will have a a terrible hard time. And without transparency, I think remote is very hard. How do you see remote? Where where would it fail? Where do you see the... Mm. Points, well, the breaking so to your points. Previous point, to your previous point mm-hmm. with regards to documentation, show me a company that's 500 people and has no documentation, and I'll show you a liar. It's one of those things that if, you, if you're if you five to 10 people right now and you think, oh, documentation is one of those things that I need to do in the future, you're absolutely wrong. You need to document everything right now. The more you document, the more successful you will be. And I know it doesn't feel like that, but it is absolutely true. Uh, We have a full-time process documentation person, full-time salary. Their job is just to be able to create processes and keep all of our processes up to date inside of our organization. We've made that level of commitment for 100 people inside of the company. to be able to deploy on that. So to the failure point, I mean, process documentation is probably top two. Um, The other one is communication. So how do you communicate effectively inside of remote teams? Um, You know, remote teams are much slower on collaboration than in-person teams. It's absolutely like, that's one of those things that until we build tools that are better suited towards that type of collaboration. We're never going to overcome that problem. And on our side, we realize that communication is one of those things that we've always had such a massive challenge with. And um, the, the playbook really hasn't been built yet as to whether or not you should be doing video calls, as an example, or should you be doing audio or should you be doing synchronous versus asynchronous? Uh, Should you be doing emails? I have a hierarchy of communication, which is in-person beats video, video beats audio, audio beats instant messaging and instant messaging beats email. As you move up the chain, you become more synchronous. As you move down the chain, you become more asynchronous. And I've always been of the philosophy that we should be moving as much as synchronous as humanly possible. However, someone like Amir, as an example from Duist, completely disagrees. He thinks that the more asynchronous that you can get, the better, because it allows you to have clear focus, right? So you have very clear focused time, um, which is an interesting, it's, it's interesting to see where the founders mindsets are. So, So Amir and, and Dimitri and Seb are all developers, right? Um, Someone like, um, we were having a debate between Amir from Duist and the guys from Help Scout. So Help Scout believes that we should be synchronous. We had this debate, but 
Help Scout is coming more from a marketing and sales perspective. So the playbook really hasn't been built yet. Like we don't know which, what's the right mix. And to be completely honest with you, I think it entirely applies to your job type. Developers need blocks of time to be left alone and not bothered. Uh, someone like me, who's more on the marketing side, I really am excited by communication and collaboration. It's one of the core components of who I am as a person, and that helps me work more efficiently. So uh, I'd love to be able to provide like an answer, but that's actually the reason why we built a conference like Running Remote was to specifically hammer down what's the right mix? How should it work? What's the playbook? Uh, no one's figured it out yet. Uh, and then um, you will see there's a, uh, I already recorded a podcast with um, Professor Roderick Swab, and, but he talks about all of this in the context of customer negotiation and, and negotiation of any, of any sort. And then he gives a bit more clarity. But what you're telling me is really important because we are building a list right now with um, the rest of researchers and academia that, that basically made this podcast, right? Uh, mm -hmm. To understand what are the next areas of research that practitioners are looking into some, somewhere where they don't have answers. And where they're coming from, all of the remote work research has been done previous to COVID-19. Now everyone is forced mm. to move and they're facing different challenges, right? For a researcher to get up to speed, they need to understand the questions, they need to understand the problems, and then they can give, they can design the research and give solutions and answers to those, uh, to those issues. So it's, uh, it's uh, really interesting because I, I had the impression that everyone was trying to go towards asynchronous. From all of my discussions with GitLab, with uh, Mark Frein from Lambda School, former uh, InVision, I somehow got the feeling that that asynchronous was yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, you're 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 putting yourself yeah. inside of a gilded cage, yes. right? So this is one of those things that I think remote work is so much bigger than what we've currently mm -hmm. conceptualized it of, and I think, and I I love the GitLab people. No offense whatsoever to what they're doing. I think they're absolutely monumental in terms of leadership at this point in understanding where we are um, and how we can help other companies. However, if you take the GitLab model and you apply it to Deloitte, you're probably going to blow, it's gonna blow up in your face, right? It's a different type of organization, different type of structure. Um, just to be able to say that there's a one size fits all is unfortunately not the case. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the beauty, well, the disadvantage of academia is it moves very, very slowly. So the research should already be done now because we're going through a shift in labor that I would argue has not been experienced since the Industrial Revolution. Um, by our numbers, we estimate about 60% of the US workforce was working remotely in April. And before that, in 2008, it was 4% full-time remote. So a complete shift in understanding how remote work is happening. And um, it's we've always been based in a tech startup mindset for remote work. And I think we need to really put a lot of energy into understanding how corporate works remotely, because I think it's a different animal. Oh, and definitely. I, I might get a little bit of hate on that one, but like, you know, because <laughs> I, I think we, I, the, Remote work right now has had a 
almost a, a lovingly so, a fundamentalist perspective with regards to there is a very specific way to do remote work, and that is the only way that you can do remote work. And a very passionate group of people, but un- and there's a, a friend of mine that I've been chatting with uh, from Profitwell, Patrick Campbell, and he had seen on his data analysis that remote first tech startups grow slower than on-premise tech startups. And he was just showing the data because he had the data set available to him. And he got such a massive amount of hate for that statement um, or for that finding, but it's just data, right? So we should really just be moving in the direction of the data and understanding where it is. And the other thing that I think is important to take into consideration is remote work will not necessarily be a utopian future. We thought about computers being the way that we would only work one hour a day and everyone would be super happy and you know we'd have manna growing off the trees without any problem whatsoever and the reality is is that's not what happened um, there was there were positive things that happened with the age of computing and, and internet access and there are a lot of negative things that happened and I think exactly the same thing is going to happen with remote work um, and to look at it pragmatically is probably the best way to do it and not necessarily discount other opinions that don't feed into that singular narrative. Well, for sure. We have to take all the data. I think this is what um, researchers are missing right now. And they miss the, and they're, they're building right now, not that they're missing and not doing anything, but they're building right now relationships with companies, right? So they can understand what's happening, collect the data, and then, and then uh, use some uh, research method to understand what's happening. And there is a difference mm-hmm. between a PwC and a Deloitte who maybe has access to their customers and can get some data from there and run some really quick research versus an academic research uh, where you have to form the groups, have uh, peers who uh, review your paper and then publish it and all of that, which can, can take a year, year and a half, two years. Well, and there's also a selector bias, yeah. I think, inside of that entire environment, like you had mentioned with regards to asynchronous communication. Mm-hmm you know, when you're thinking to yourself, well, who are the remote companies? And you think GitLab, Envision, you know. Twitter um, right now, Facebook. Right. So these are all tech companies. Yeah. And they come from a development background as opposed to, let's talk to 3M. Um, Sasha Connor, who's a fantastic uh, remote work consultant, she was the first employee to go remote at Clorox which is a company that sells bleach. And how does a company like Clorox go remote? Well, it's a very, very different process from the way that, sure. that Twitter or, or um, you know, uh, GitLab goes remote. Oh, so definitely. It, it's good to get an understanding of all of those different companies. For sure. I was the first one working remote for a French company. And they've never heard of it. And uh, they pretty much said, no, 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 you can't do it. We love you, but you can't do it. And in the end, they they, uh, accept it. But as an employee in a company where you are the only one doing it, you have to make all the effort. There will be no effort from the company. You raise your hand, you're asking for it. You are doing what needs to be done so you can be present. You either you travel or whatever, but but you have to to make it work. So that's that's an interesting uh, take. Mm. How do you think... Do you think we, we want to continue working remotely in the future? Or do you think this is just hype? We're going to move there 10, 15 years. And then we will realize that, hey, innovation works better when we are face-to-face. Collaboration works better. Even communication, because 
we've had this issue of communicating forever and ever. Um, do you think this is just 10, 15, 20 years answer. and then going back? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So uh, I think I'm going to make some, I'm going to make some bets here. Uh, I'll bet you a dollar that within 10 years, people will be asking to go back inside of the office. So there will be employees that say, I don't want to work remotely. I want to work inside of an office because they'll, it will shift so much to the other side. However, I think right now, remote work is an employee perk. And I think within the next five to 10 years, remote work will be an employer perk, meaning the employer will say, we cannot operate our business model without it being remote because when everyone else, so I'll give you an example, small example of what we do. We're able to acquire talent at a much, we're able to acquire really top tier talent for a much more cost-effective price. So we don't, um, just in the news recently, Facebook had stated that they are going to lower your salary if you leave San Francisco and you work remotely. And that's another interesting debate to have for large corporate, right? The realities of those P&Ls and where they fit and how corporate America is going to adapt to remote work. But we don't do that. So we'll, as an, as an example, say, well, we're hiring a new um, developer and we're going to pay that developer 60,000 US. Well, that means that somewhere like San Francisco or New York are completely out of our, our the realm of possibility. But the Midwest or Eastern Europe or um, somewhere in Asia, Asia those yeah. those are all open. Uh, we ended up hiring the um, a developer who ended up getting third place in the Facebook hackathon back in 2014, and he was from Bangladesh. He got a $600,000 offer from Facebook, but he ended up working for us for about a tenth of that because Facebook would not let him work remotely. And instead, he said, well, I want to stay with my family. And 60000 in Bangladesh is like 600000 um, in Palo Alto. So that was such a huge tactical advantage for us. And that situation is going to very quickly disappear, unfortunately, because the talent is just going to go everywhere. So I think also as well, when you see Twitter, Facebook, Shopify, um, can't remember. There's a couple other big tech companies that have all gone remote. We're talking about, let's say, a hundred thousand remote workers or workers that all make more than two hundred thousand US per month. So we're talking about 0.1 percenters of the global population in terms of earning potential. They are all going to go. I think half of them will be remote and will probably be in places like Medellin, Ubud, Chengdu, um, Chiang Mai, within two years. And then there will be a very interesting counterpoint to that, which is they'll recognize that geography does not denote skill. And right now we've had that unconscious bias in just because you're in San Francisco, you're automatically a better developer. Incorrect. Incorrect. There are developers in Kiev that are as good. There's our guy in Bangladesh who got third place in the Facebook hackathon. He's the absolute top tier developer on planet Earth. <laughs> and that talent is going to be able to compete openly with everyone else that has now gone remote. And I actually think that this is quite possibly 
a one of the biggest threats towards San Francisco being the core of the tech industry that they're not even recognizing because they just opened up Pandora's box and have given tech startups permission to be able to hire talent remotely um, that's as good, but is a lot more cost effective. So that's a very interesting side issue that I think we're not even kind of recognizing at this point where all of these people will leave. And I believe that their salaries will probably be very significantly cut in the next few years. How do you how do you deal with because this was one of the issues that Facebook faced right now when uh, they moved everyone remotely there was a, a lot of backlash from the employees uh, that they are going to cut their salaries because they are moving somewhere else how do you deal with this at time doctor do you, how do you set the so we have a base, yeah so we have a we have we don't have salary bands based off geography we simply just hire people based off of where they're located so we have people that are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year um, because that was what we had to pay to be able to get that type of person. And then we have people that are paid tens of thousands of dollars per year because that's what we could hire for that position. It's just market rates. And for us, we look at it in that context. So if you're a support rep, as an example, um, uh, and let's say that there's a support rep competition between someone from Toronto and someone from Cebu in the Philippines. They should have the same salary and we should just all compete and figure out where the best talent ends up. Um, and if that's the person in Cebu, congratulations, you're now making way more money than anyone inside of Manila uh, or sorry, in the inside of the Philippines. So like that, that's a very easy calculation for us, but we may have to change that philosophy pretty soon because I actually think this opportunity that we've had the last few years maybe has 12 to 18 months left before that opportunity will cease to exist because the talent Envision is doing mm -hmm. this perfectly. Mm -hmm. So they're buying talent from Toronto, um, uh, Atlanta, the Midwest. They're, they're hiring a lot of really good talent particularly from North America, but they're not hiring talent from New York, San Francisco, Boston, um, these cities that have historically been the hubs for tech because they're recognizing that they can hire someone for 70,000 and not, and, and their value is as much as the $160,000 person in San Francisco which is why they're growing so quickly. <laughs> if you look at their, the way that their org chart works, like there's a thousand people at Envision. They're not hiring those people at, they're getting those people for 50 cents on the dollar. And the people that are working in the Midwest are very happy to get those jobs at 50 cents on the dollar because in comparison to their local geography, they're one of the top tier employees in that area in terms of earning potential. So. I think it's a win-win. It's interesting to see where the debate is going to end up because it will probably get to a point in which you're not just competing with people in the Midwest, you're competing with Mumbai, with Kiev, with, um, you know, with uh, all of these, these cities that are pumping out really good talent that is very cost-effective. I think their salaries will go up. And then I think 
these major cities that have really been based. The, the, re, the reason why San Francisco has become so big is because of venture capital. It'll still always be a place to be able to raise money for venture capital, but you might just have the executive team in San Francisco and everyone else is distributed um, remotely. Yeah, for, for sure. I, I think maybe it will last more than 12 months, to maybe, maybe a few years, because companies which are really big, uh, they're moving slowly oh. on this. Um, yeah. they have, they have certain, uh, salary brackets. <laughs> they are based on country jobs. It's very hard to change this, uh, this politics. And I'm, I'm working with some of the big, uh, names as well, uh, in recruitment and they have not changed yet. They are still afraid to do it. They're still discussing this. They see, they see the potential, but it takes a longer time to, uh, to implement for, for sure. So the smaller mm. companies, I think they still have, uh, they still have a, a chance right now and, but it's for for a recruiter. This is the this is the dream. It's less mm -hmm. biased. It's more diverse. You can look for mm -hmm. talent everywhere, and you can really support companies in getting the best out there in the market. Because yeah. you can search everywhere, right? You're not limited to a location where the, maybe the headquarters is, or maybe a, a vice president of sales decided to uh, to set up a camp, right? So it's kind yeah, of yeah. We've had some we've had some interesting debates about that because whenever we sit set what I would almost define as like an unlimited uh, salary cap. So we don't care how much mm -hmm. the salary is. We end up mostly actually um, hiring talent outside of or within North America, which is interesting. Uh, and that may also be our own personal bias connected to, because we're, we're North American, but um it's a when we readjust that salary cap, even let's say we we bring it down like ten percent. So instead of paying two hundred thousand dollars for an absolute top tier person, we might set our salary cap to one fifty. Wow, things change almost instantaneously. And there's such a when when you're not looking for the one percenter, but you're looking for like the two or three percenter of talent, um, the competition in comparison to when I compare like. San Francisco, New York, Boston to um, Eastern Europe, as an example, there's no competition. Um, I think that we're probably going to see a huge transfer of wealth from primarily the United States to people that have PhDs in computer science, as an example, and are living in Kiev and are very happy to make a hundred thousand US per year versus two hundred thousand US per year, yeah. and it's it's going to be such a game changer, and you're going to see this not just happen. This is not just going to be one or two developers. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that are going to be moving, and then that creates a whole bunch of other implications, like how do you pay those people legally? What are the legal implications of doing all of these types of things? Um, because we've just started to see countries crack down on that problem, which is remote workers and where are you located and how do you operate? Um, I think that's going to get 10 times worse. I, I don't know if you've been following the news with regards to remote.com, uh, GitLab, well, GitLab people have basically built a payroll system for the planet and for remote workers. Um, these types of technologies and companies are going to be absolutely critical for the proliferation of remote work because in a lot of these countries, we're not hiring them legally. Um, and 
legally is actually even an operative word because no one really knows how to hire them. Yeah, definitely. And then if even if they have a company uh, and if they only have one person pay, paying them, one other entity paying them, that's still considered in most of the parts uh, illegal, right? And then usually governments come back and chase you to to employ them. By the way, th- right. this is one of the, the things that I wanted to discuss with you. Because even if it's 10, 15, 20 years, and then we maybe move to hybrid again or whatever, we change our minds, um, there's still enough time to have a different view on jobs how the job of the future would look like, how the career of the future would look like if we are moving remote. What are your thoughts on that? How the how a remote job will look? Would, would, our, careers, would our careers change because of this shift to remote work? Boy, that's, a, that's another debate as well. I mean, there was a vision of the future even a few years ago inside of remote work, which was the gig economy. Right, the the Upwork, the freelancers, the Fiverr.com, um, and I, I I respect those companies, but I don't think that that's the future of work for me. Uh, I think that longer term engagements are really where you end up having a mission, you have a direction, you have a feeling of what you're going to do with your career and your career path. Um, I just don't think you're going to see it on on these gig websites. I think they'll probably have a place. We still use those types of platforms if we need a very small job done. So as an example, let's say if I need to install a tracking pixel inside of a website, it's much more easier for me to be able to pay $5 to our guy on Fiverr to just install it than to spend the $40 of labor internally to be able to do it because they know all of our processes. But um, I don't think it's going to change all that much, okay. to be completely honest with you. It's it's going to be, I think it's going to be pretty much the same because I think if you're like, if you're a developer, as an example, we don't hire developers for, you know, a month. We hire developers for years because you just logistically need to actually have so much background knowledge in our code base, as an example, to even do meaningful work. So I don't think that will fundamentally change. I don't know what your perspective is on that, but um, it's an interesting one. It may change, but to me, I was I was thinking that uh, maybe because companies tend to move quicker than governments, and right now, legislating um, the the how how a freelancer works or how a company works and the benefits that you get as a freelancer or as part of a small company that you maybe maybe started are way less than if you work for a company for 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 an employer right and you if you are employed uh, so if the governments that's my feeling if the governments don't move fast enough so as freelancers you can have a pension and unemployment and all of that I see no reason why people would not get employed, right? And and I think it would it might even hurt the gig economy. If you're allowed, if I'm allowed to work from home, from anywhere, on my own schedule, mm-hmm. asynchronous mm-hmm. as part of a company, uh, to have meaning and to have to be part of something uh, bigger, right? Mm-hmm. And not do accounting on my own, <laughs> which is terrible. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I might I might give it uh, another 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 thought. Uh mm-hmm. Because you still have the same kind of freedom and you still work with colleagues, right? And it's it's perfectly the same and you can you can manage your own time. 
if they make you go into an office, then that's different, right? That's not a perk anymore. But I think mm-hmm. gig workers might lose some or might see it different if companies start implementing this. And I was thinking mm-hmm. that maybe if you work from home at some point and if you stay a gig worker or work on projects, maybe you can have two or three careers at the same time, uh, work on different stuff that interests you and maybe take uh, three hours of a day to work for Time Doctor and then I can work two hours of a day to run the podcast and, and so on, right? And then I can have right. multiple options at some point in, uh, in, in my life, maybe. Just yeah, I think that also connects to personality types as well. True. So I know for me, I have a major problem with focus. Uh, one of the reasons why we built Time Doctor as well is it's a productivity tool to be able to keep people focused, and it's because I'm not very good at it. So for me to commit, one of the things that we did when we started the company is uh, me and my co-founder Rob, we had inside of our initial agreement, a minimum amount of hours that we both had to work on Time Doctor per week, or our shares would get damaged from our vesting period, because I had such a problem about focusing on one singular thing. And now um, I get, like, I don't do any consulting whatsoever with regards to remote work, even though I'd love to, and I get offers all the time to be able to do it. It's because it's an issue of focus for me. I would be so in the weeds. I'm so passionate about this subject that I would get distracted and I wouldn't be able to focus on what I need to do. So I think for some people, they could probably divide their time equally. For me, it's it's a lot more difficult mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Yeah, it, I, I'm sure it will depend, but I think at least it will give you the opportunity to do something different. Maybe it's um, it's sure. a thought. I'm curious yeah. how this will change. Uh, how this will change uh, as well, uh, mm. Liam. I know I promised you I could speak with you like four, five, six more hours. <laughs> right. And uh, I, I had a lot of fun listening to your uh, podcast as well, to your uh, recordings on uh, remote work. And if anyone mm-hmm. wants to view them, they can go on YouTube running remote, right? That's yep. YouTube.com slash running remote. And, all, and also there's a all wealth of, of information there. there too. Yeah. 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 Which, I, which I really love. And I had a lot of fun uh, uh, going through it. Any last thoughts on remote that you would like to share with everyone? I think we're at the tipping point with regards to remote work. Actually, I think we were at the tipping point around March, uh, and we're currently June 2nd. So interesting time that we're in. Uh, I think for anyone that is interested in getting into remote work, now is absolutely the time to do it. And I think every day that you don't do it, the opportunity is starting to slip away from you. Uh, And I also think from a business perspective, I know there's a lot of academics that probably uh, check out this podcast as well, but from an entrepreneurial perspective, there is going to be such a massive infrastructure of tools that need to be built and companies that will need to be built in order to service the four to 60% that I talked about before uh, with regards to remote work. And now is the time to be able to start those types of businesses because they will all be there will be multiple billion dollar companies that come out of this situation. And if you are sleeping on this, you will miss out an opportunity of a lifetime. I agree. Liam, thank you so much for your time today. And I hope we can do this in uh, the future as well. Yeah. Thanks for having me.